glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Please stand with me as we respect the reading of God's Word. We'll read verses 18 through verse 31. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, to bring to, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. We'll probably end with these verses, but I want to mention them at the beginning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. And then there's just a few more words at the end. Lest any man should boast. And you and I both, we already went through a list of things this morning that we as men boast in. And the God deals with all of those things here. And I have to think back. I don't always understand the direction God stirs into my heart as he prepares me to preach. But over the last number of weeks, I hear, and I don't, I don't pretend to have my thumb on the, the pulse of the spiritual world. I just It's on the world I live in, but there's preachers I discuss things with and unsafe people I'm trying to lead to the Lord. And I think of a quote that was made a few weeks ago about, uh, some simple-mindedness, and I've mentioned some things like this. And I see also uh, a trend, and it's not new, but even among people who are saved, leaning back toward replacing what we have in Christ for maybe feel like we wouldn't be so reproached if we would be able to compete with the world in the realm of uh, education or of intellectualism or these kind of things. And so... I believe there's a number of things in my own personal life that brings the necessity of this message today. I, I debated whether or not, Lord, are you just giving it for me uh, to chew on and help me understand my work and, and, and His will in my life. And I landed on, I believe you wanted it to preach this morning. 
Uh, and, and so there, that's where we are. But how many times do, do we, and let me just say this, flesh looks to fleshly reasoning rather than spiritual reasoning. And the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. I was asked a question as part of kind of a, a polling the other day. I keep mentioning this, but it's, it's pertinent. It's, it's giving some good sermon illustrations, if nothing else. But asked a question among, there's a number of us preachers and, and pastors and perhaps evangelists. I don't know who all is involved in it being asked some questions about various doctrinal positions, practical. I don't answer all the questions. Some of them I feel needful to. But one of them was, what do you think about this, this, this forum of asking these questions and the amount of disagreement we see in the answers that come on these issues that are not always you know, clear? Um, and some of the questions are very clearly answered in the Bible, and yet all the answers are not the same. My take on it, biblically, I try to think it through and pray about it, but my take on it is this. There does seem to be a lack of clarity on spiritual issues in our day, but it has to do with what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There were those who were carnal in 1 Corinthians 1. There were those who were following this person or that person instead of simply relying on the Lord and His Word. And what it resulted in was schism and division and all those kind of things. And that's the context that Paul preaches the end of 1 Corinthians 1 to them in is that here's some problems in the Corinthian church. And my understanding of this question was asked was, it is common for professing Christians to have a, a broad array of beliefs. And the question would be, why? And the only answer I can say is that many times, even after becoming a saved person, we lean back on nobility and intellectualism and who has the most wealth, or you think about how men today spiritually get a following. Many times it's the same way men politically get a following. And God is trying to help us see God doesn't operate like man does. God doesn't operate like man does. I want you to notice something here, and what I wanted to say is the idea would be that there's lack of clarity, not because God is not clear, but because of fleshly reasoning that's in the way and when Paul's dealing with the preaching of the cross, he's dealing with folks not getting saved. And he says this uh, back in verse 19, or excuse me, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God, not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, it seems to me what he's saying is the wisdom that God gave them, then they by wisdom, by the, the wisdom that they, they developed on their own, knew not God. They, they got too, too smart for their own good, if you would. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Notice what he says in verse 22. For the Jews require a, a sign. We'll believe you if you give an exhibition or an experience of power. We base our beliefs on our experience. So the Jews require a sign. Give us an experience. All right? Isn't that what a sign is? Give an exhibition that what you're preaching is really from God. They would tell Jesus all the time, how long, they said to him, how long dost thou make us doubt? They pawned their doubt off on who? On Christ. How long dost thou make us doubt? If what you're preaching is true, 
Give us a sign from heaven. Like jump off a building and don't die or call fire down. And he said, a wicked and a perverse generation seeketh after a sign. Meaning by telling me you need a sign, you're telling me I cannot be trusted. I was witnessing to a man yesterday, trying to. I've dealt with him in time past. Very troubled young man. You've seen him walking our streets from time to time. Very troubled fellow. And as I'm talking to him, I'm talking to him about the difference between truth and lies. And he says, you have a spirit of doubt that tells me you believe both truth and lies. I said, well, explain. What do you mean? He said, you don't believe what I'm saying. He was saying a lot of things. I said, you're exactly right. I do not believe what you're saying. I do doubt you. What he was saying was he could pick up on my unbelief of his assessment of spiritual matters because I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. Part of it was. The other part was he picked up on, you don't believe me. Well, we do the same thing with God. The Jews require a sign. We're not sure if we can trust your word, so prove that you're God. You know who required of Jesus a sign three times? If thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. If thou be the Son of God, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. It's satanic to require a sign. God gives signs when he desires to. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, let's stay alliterated this morning. This folk, they want an exhibition. If you're telling the truth, prove it by a sign. This this people, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, that's us, they want an explanation. The Bible doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, and here's why, 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 everything he says is true. It just assumes God is true and he can be trusted, and if you don't, that's the errors on our part. He has proven himself trustworthy, and that's the context that the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has written, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews seek after a sign the, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they, they seek after wisdom. This bunch wants an exhibition of miracles. This bunch wants an explanation through philosophy. But we preach the cross. Meaning God didn't come and show how powerful he was. He in weakness was crucified. Well, that's a sign. It's the resurrection that was his power. Amen. So we preach the cross under the Jews, a stumbling block. And under the Greeks, foolishness. You're not giving me a good explanation. You tell me that through what Jesus did on the cross, my sins are forgiven, and the next phrase is, that just doesn't make... Uh, gets a lot of people in trouble. Let me ask you this. What is the taproot of both the, the demand for a sign, the demand for an exhibition of power, and the demand of an explanation that's prudent? What's the taproot? That we're getting there. It is unbelief, but underneath unbelief is what I hear? Pride. I am the one that God has to answer to. He has to prove to me he can be trusted rather than me proving to him that I trust him. I'm going to require, Lord, if you want me to believe you, you give me a sign. God, if you want me to believe you, you better explain yourself. No one like that will ever know God. Paul said, we don't come explaining and we don't come exhibiting necessarily signs and wonders, although there were signs and there were wonders and there were miracles. He said, we come preaching. You know what preaching is? It is a declaration of what is true. It's that simple. Say, boy, Pastor, wouldn't more people get saved around here if we could have a healing service? No. 
Not if they won't listen to preaching the cross. Preacher, wouldn't more people get saved if we could have a little more education and explain the gospel a little more clearly? We ought to be faithful with the gospel and explain it plainly as the Bible gives it. But I want to tell you something. No level of education in the original tongue will make more people get saved. Amen? Don't lose me this morning, please, folks. This is a pertinent message. Because today, we even as believers get caught up in the pride of the world. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, and the pride of life. And we forget that everything we have is in a person. Do you know how much wisdom I had as a four-year-old little boy? I still had a lot of foolishness bound up in my heart, but I thank God for parents who spanked me and beat some of that out of me. I wasn't intelligent as a four-year-old, but I did know this. The Word of God says I was a sinner, and God gave me enough of conscience to recognize that and believe Him. He told me that Jesus Christ, and this was preached to me and taught to me, and I'm, I'm grateful that I'd heard the gospel. I don't remember the first time I heard the gospel. I'm so grateful for that. Because by the time I was just a little boy, I'd heard it enough that God was able to begin to deal with my heart and convince me, you're a sinner. And I demonstrated that and knew that. As a little boy, I did not believe I might go to hell. I knew I would. I just didn't know when it would be. I was that convinced. But I also knew the moment I asked Christ to save me, because I knew who he was from his word, he would do it. And therefore, upon calling upon him... I had never seen a miracle. And if you had explained to me the underlying languages of the Bible, I couldn't have understood a word you said. But I did understand the gospel because it broke through to my heart. You know what? I want us to pay attention to this text today because it's so important. Number one, if you're here and you've not yet come to faith in Christ, if the devil has offered you some excuse like, well, you don't understand it or you need more education... It is not education that's going to save you. It's faith. It is not, it is not, uh, you don't need to see a miracle to be convinced that the gospel's true. You're hearing it plainly declared from you from God's preserved word. What we need is faith. What it takes to get anything from God, whether salvation or sanctification or power to obey, whatever it may be, it comes by faith. I cannot overemphasize this. Faith. The only good education does is when it is appropriated with faith. You say, Pastor, you're against education. Well, that's nonsense. But it can't save you. And for those of us who seek to win others to Christ, we need reminded of this today. That God has chosen the plain, clear declaration of His Word as the means by which to save men. Sometimes we wish we could demonstrate miraculous power. We're getting ready to go into vacation Bible school. We're going to have some little children here. And if we're not careful, we'll miss how we deal with little children. Simply, faithfully proclaim what God says. It's the Word of God that saves. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I got saved when I believed what this book says. I've heard people say, we need not fuss about this issue or fuss about this issue. Let's just preach Jesus. i got news for you. If you're going to preach the Jesus of the Bible, you've got to preach who he is and what he said. Amen. So my point this morning is, if we're not careful, we fall prey to the demand of a world that says, give us a sign. 
We fall prey to the demands of a world that says, give us an explanation or give us an exhibition. Let me give you a little further illustration. I mean, no ill will toward any one person, but I think for the sake of the, uh, the message today, before we get into the, the meat of the message, let me illustrate this. There's two movements in our country today that a lot of believers fall into. Truly saved people fall prey to. You have on one hand the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement emphasizes an experience. I know the Bible says, but I know what I experienced. You can say to someone that's unsaved and caught up in that movement, have you been born again? Well, I think so because I was at a service one time. You wouldn't believe how the Spirit of God moved. People were shouting and falling on the ground and speaking in tongues, and I felt an unbelievable wave of peace sweep over my soul. And so you think that's when you were born again? Well, that's Yeah. But the Bible says you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be born again. Have you come to a point where you realize if he doesn't save you, you're going to perish? Don't, don't you rob me of my experience now. And tell me one time, his experience was water baptism. And he had an emotional experience at his water baptism. And I began to try to say, but you're not saved because you've not trusted Christ. He had no record of having trusted Christ. Just, I got dunked underwater. And he said, don't you rob me of my baptism. I won't do that. I want to make sure you understand the difference between an experience and salvation. See, is it salvation experience? It is, but it's a spiritual one, not necessarily an emotional one. It may affect your emotions. Don't misunderstand. But you must be born again. That is a transaction between you and God by faith. You acknowledge to God, I am a sinner devoid of righteousness. I have no righteousness. And only Jesus Christ can make me righteous. And Lord, I'm asking for it. I want forgiveness. I want salvation. And upon his own word, God will save you according to his word. Over here... So we have the charismatic movement over here and a lot of believers get mixed up in that. Instead of taking the simple, clear word of God, they want an experience. Then you have over here, there are those who want an explanation and we have Calvinism. We have to be able to explain the sovereignty of God. We have to be able to explain what God was doing before he created the world. You know what? You can't because he didn't tell you. I heard a question the other day. What do you think was in the mind of God about how uh, he was thinking uh, before he created man, that giving man the ability to choose? My answer was simple. We don't know because he didn't say. God, you don't have to explain everything. You have to believe what God has explained. Amen? You, listen, you don't have to explain how God created the heaven and the earth in six 24-hour periods, evening and morning, evening and morning. Just believe it. There's your explanation. And today you don't have to explain how is it possible that my faith in a person who I cannot see puts the living spirit of God in my soul. You don't have to explain it, but it's a fact. And the Calvinism seeks to explain all the deep things of God because we need it. We must have an explanation or we can't believe. You know what both is? Unbelief. Unbelief. I don't just take God as word. I need an exhibition of his power. I don't just take God as word. I have to explain everything he says or I won't believe it. Somewhere right in between is faith of people who know they're needy. And Jesus Christ is the only answer. This morning, the call of today's message is back to simplistic faith. We looked last Sunday in Sunday school where Paul said that he, he, he was concerned, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled even the garden, so you should be uh, robbed of, of the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians 11 talks about that. And here is that simplicity we're talking about today. So verse 26, let's begin, if, I, if you would, if you're taking notes, we'll begin with the calling of God. Now, the call is the invitation. Now, if you, want, if you want commentary, you say, I want to understand this a little further in the light of God's word, read 1 Corinthians 1 here about the calling of God in light of Matthew 22, 1 through 14. 
a parable on many are called, but few are chosen. So we know, according to the word of God, God has called whosoever will to take the water of life. But how many people have actually actuated that call and are the called of God unto salvation? You can say this, not many mighty. How many How many of our uh, mighty people, the well-known, renowned, nationally known people in the United States would you say are truly born-again believers? So whether if they're known through politics or athletics or their Hollywood performances, how many of them do you think have truly received by faith the indwelling Holy Spirit of God having been saved through faith in Christ's word? Lots or not many? Not many. How many of the wealthy in this nation are born again? Not many. How many of the, of the family nobility, those who have bloodlines going all the way back to the Mayflower and have been in politics up to their ears and are, are the movers and shakers in our country, how many of them are born again? Not many. Oh, well, God doesn't like them. has nothing to do with it. God's call is to the needy. God's call of salvation is to those who do not trust in themselves. And that's why not many mighty, not many noble, so on and so forth. So verse 26 tells us of the calling of God. He says, for you see your calling, brethren. He said, look among you, those of you who know that you are saved, those of you who have the call of God of salvation, and you have been, as the Bible would word it, you're part of the elect. How many of you, those of you who know you're saved, look at your calling, brethren, uh, how that not many wise men after the flesh. You know, say, what he's differentiating is, we're not saying you've got to be stupid to be saved, but wise men after the flesh. How many, how many would you say of our professors, I don't care how many years you go back, I understand liberalism has swept our universities by storm, socialism, and all this kind of, uh, of, of horrid thinking, but even let's go back into the 1800s and the 1700s. How many of your high education class, even then, many of them were deists? Many of our founding fathers were deists, meaning they believed God was a, a very distant, powerful force, but not Jehovah God of the Bible, certainly not Jesus Christ, our Creator. Thomas Jefferson took his pen knife or scissors and removed all the portions of the New Testament that required miraculous power from God didn't believe in the miracles. I'm not here to preach about our history, but I'm just trying to tell you it's been the same for 2,000 years. Paul preached with power to numerous leaders, Felix and Festus and and, and various uh, King Agrippa. He preached with power, convicting power, so that I believe it was Felix, the Bible says, trembled under the convicting preaching of Paul. But guess what? He didn't get saved. Agrippa says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Why not? Because not many mighty, not, not many noble, not many of them do. The call of God is in such a way that it's rare to see one who trusts. Jesus said it this way, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for he that trusts in his riches to enter into the kingdom. It's not that God was segregating and trying to keep them out. It's that the nature of his call requires us to humble ourselves before God and receive God's gift as, a, as a, a salvation as a gift. Uh, Brandon, could you help at the front door? I think someone's trying to get back in. Thank you. Um, so verse 26 again. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many. Now, I've heard other preachers note this, and it's good to note. It doesn't say any, but not many. So those folks can be saved, but not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty not many noble are called. God lists, and we're going to 
for our sake of our minds, we'll, we'll list them this way, not many that are prudent after the flesh. So the intellectually superior, the highly educated. Look, men today, I, I would be a fool myself to say that scientists of our day who have developed so many of the, the technologies we have, they're not stupid people. They're wise according to the flesh. They can take physical sciences and do wonders. It's rare to see brain surgeons and, and uh, rocket scientists come to faith in Christ. And what they would say is, it's because your gospel is stupid. Any educated person wouldn't believe in the Easter Bunny or in fairies or in Jesus Christ. That's what they'll say. Did that take God by surprise? Did he know he'd be charged with being foolish? He did. It says it right here. He says, wise people reject the gospel based on that. So not many wise men after the flesh... That's the prudent after the flesh, wise men after the flesh. Not many mighty, uh, not many uh, mighty. That deals with power. Those who are strong, you know, it's, <laughs> I meet men from time to time. They're not wealthy. They're not. They're not highly educated. But boy, they're strong men. Strong men. Uh, men who can can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. You witness to some old, some old uh, hard nosed logger. Hard to get that old guy saved. He's been through everything. I don't need God. I've done it all myself. Not many mighty, no. And not many prudent, not many powerful, and not many who have pedigree. He says this, noble. Nobility has to do with your, with your birth and your upbringing. You got good, good stock. You come from good stock. You come from a good family. I knew you start running up my family tree just a little ways or down it, and you'll find it wasn't good stock. If God had not saved my dad, I have no idea where I'd be today. Probably not here at all. I have a family line that's full of drunkards. I had moonshiners as great uncles and great aunts for that matter. People who died young, cirrhosis of the liver and car accidents and burning themselves up in their houses because they were drunk. My grandfather was the exact same way till he was 50, but... When my dad was 15, somebody knocked on his door and preached to him. Put him on a church bus, took him to church, and he heard the gospel for the first time in his life. And he heard that silly message that Jesus died for you and actually came alive from the dead after three days, and God convinced him it was true. And alcoholism was broken in our family, in our family tree. Drunkenness, that's the Bible word. Our new word to whitewash is alcoholism. It is, but it's drunkenness is what the Bible says. And God broke that. You know what changed? Honestly, you could try to come up with some other explanation. But until then, the entire family was drunkards. My dad got saved, never been a drunkard. His dad got saved at the age of 50, went 28 years and never touched a drop before the Lord called him home to heaven. My grandpa Bob, my mother's dad, was a drunkard until God saved him. Nearly got kicked out of the military over it. You know why? Because he was lost. What made the difference? Someone came and told them that Jesus Christ is literally who the Bible says He is and that He's the only hope for your soul. And you know what happened? They didn't need an explanation. They didn't need an exhibition. They had the Word of God and they believed it. Not many prudent, not many powerful, not many of pedigree. Look at Mark 12, 37. I referenced it earlier. We'll move on to our next point. Mark 12, 37. The Bible says this, verse 30, 
7 says, David therefore himself called him. Jesus is taking the Bible and preaching it. That's what's going on. He's preaching the scripture from the Psalms, verse 35. And he's dealing with the scribes and Pharisees who are always demanding an exhibition and an explanation. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. That means the uncommon people did not. (laughs) The common people, the people who were not highly intellectual, the people who were not of noble degree, the people who couldn't trace their heritage back because it was so muddled by sin, sadly. You know what the Samaritans were? They had no nobility. They were Jew-Gentiles, kind of. Half-breeds. Jews who had married... The Gentiles and the Samaritans were the offspring and they were despised. It's no wonder Jesus had such a hearing in Samaria. They had no nobility to offer him. All they could say is, the world won't have us. And God said, then I will. Amen? If you and I are trying to find a home in this world, you're not going to feel very comfortable in the family of God. And so the Lord says, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. It's very rare. By the way, we find one exception in our Bible, that the Apostle Paul. He was wise according to the flesh. He was well-versed in multiple languages. He had been educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He had a tremendous education. He was politically, uh, as I understand, part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was on track to be a mover and a shaker in his community. Then how did he get saved? <laughs> what did he do with all that? Threw it on the dung pile. That's what he said, Philippians chapter 3. Why? That he might have Christ instead. Number two, we see the calling of God, verse 26, the confounding by God in verses 27, 28. So he says, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Uh, The Bible says that God has chosen, we'll give you a few words here to, 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 to write it down if you wish, but those that are deficient in wisdom to confound those who are filled with knowledge. You can look through the scripture and we will. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 4 is a good illustration of this. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, there was a man who was crippled. So I think we could call him weak, wouldn't you say? He can't walk. He's been crippled and been that way from his mother's womb. He's never been a, uh, a who's who in the community. Oh, everybody knows who he is, but nobody wants really to have anything to do with him. Acts chapter 3 Uh, Peter and John come along and they say, silver and gold have I none. What happened to ever believing that we could do the work of God with money or without it? I praise God for the funds he gives. But you know what we say? Oh, the work of God couldn't go on without money. Does God use money? Sure. But how much money did the apostles have on that day when they walked into the temple? Unless Peter was lying, he had none. Well, he must have been a poor steward wasting his money like that. 
He was a fisherman who gave up his livelihood to serve Christ. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Here's a couple of poor men who did not even have a savings account, let alone anything in it. You say, you're preaching it's having money? No, but if we're trusting our money, then yes, better to be gone with it. Better to be gone with it than trust it. And so then, silver and gold have I none, they said in Acts 3, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. By the way, that man did not ask for a sign, he asked for a quarter. Peter said, I got something better than money. Christ has told me to tell you to walk. So rise up and walk. The Bible says he immediately received strength in his ankles. And for the next number of days, it turned Jerusalem upside down. A cripple and two broken preachers who used to be fishermen turned their world upside down. Not by money. Not by strength. But by the power of God. Now you think, well, that was back then. Nothing's changed. Are you calling for apostolic miracles? No, we don't need a sign. We have the Word of God. You and I have, we, you and I have absolute promises in this Bible that if we just live by them, God could do something with this poor bunch of people. The psalmist said, this poor man cried and God heard him and delivered him. What kind of man cried? poor man. One of the best things can happen for us is us to get poor in our spirit. So Acts 3, you have a couple of broken money, broken preachers and a crippled man and God used some men who didn't have any money and God used a man who couldn't walk to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is still alive. Though he was in heaven, he was still living. And so then that's Acts chapter 3. We come into Acts chapter 4. The Bible says what happened in Acts 3 was a notable miracle, meaning people couldn't deny God healed that man. We have such notable miracles today. I referenced one earlier. How many of you know you don't change people? You can try all you want. God changes people. And every time God changes a sinner into a saint, it's a notable miracle. And so then the nation, the city of Jerusalem is trying to explain how this happened. The high priest said, man, we got rid of Jesus and we got the same problem. We didn't get rid of him. He's still here and these men working and moving. So they tell Peter and John, you can't preach in his name. And they said, well, you judge whether it's right to obey you or him, but we've got to do what he said. And so then we come down here in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. They're preaching with boldness and they say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Verse 13 says, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now that doesn't mean they were stupid, but according to the world's standards, they were stupid. When they saw they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You get the picture? Acts 3, you got a cripple, a man who can't walk, never has been able to. God taking something that's not the ability to walk, he didn't have it, and bringing to naught the wisdom of the wise. It says, you Pharisees, that was the upper echelon. We're not here preaching against the upper class. It's not the point of this. But they were reliant on their wisdom. They were reliant on their wealth. They were reliant on their pedigree. And they had determined Jesus was a fraud. Now, everybody, you believe us. We are to be listened to. We are the people who have the, the, the clout around here. Look at us. We're walking around. You'll see no defiled, crippled people in our temple. Only the best of the best. 
And God took a cripple who couldn't walk and made him walk from a couple of men who didn't have any money or education and demonstrated that he is still, his word is still true. You know why God did all that? To prove my word is true. You are refuting the word of the gospel, but you're wrong. And God is right. And so today, God's methodology has not changed. You say, boy, we really need to do God a favor. We need to go out and be able to explain the gospel. If we could explain it to every unbeliever, they would believe. No, they won't. If we could exhibit the power of God, they would believe. No, they won't. What we need to do is preach what God said. God says, There's, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's the truth of it. Man, look at me. Yesterday I said this gentleman I was talking about, his life is just a mess. And it breaks my heart. His life is a mess. He's been in drugs and alcohol and immorality. The first time I met him was very, very scornful. Then I got an email from him one day, probably five or six years ago, explaining how he was fairly persuaded that they were experiencing demonic activity. He and his girlfriend were hearing voices. Can you please come speak to me? I made my way down there, went and spoke to him, gave him Bible and prayed with him. They didn't get saved. Later, the apartment complex burned down. All those tenants lost their home. I'm talking to him yesterday. He had that same scornful attitude that he didn't have last time I talked to him. He was terrified out of his mind last time I talked to him. I'm trying to speak to him yesterday. I said, I'm going to ask you this question, Michael. I said, when you leave this life, what's going to happen to you? He said, I'm not going to. I'm not going to leave this life. He had this long explanation. And I said, you are actually. Because God says the point on men wants to die, and after this, the judgment. He had an explanation that says, that's not true, but the Bible says it is true. My, my point here this morning, friend, is God, and I really believe this is the emphasis for so many of us in this room this morning, let's not get caught in the snare of exhibitions and explanations. Preach the word. Declare, thus saith the Lord. And so God confounds the, the unbeliever. He confounds the denier the, the, the disputer, he calls him, of this world, the disputer, the gainsayer, and he does so with the deficient, those who are without. Now again, verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised. God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. As I read this, I thought, I, before I preached this morning, I really needed the definition of one word in this point, confound. What does it mean to confound? Ask this. Would God ever intentionally put someone to shame? In our humanistic world, in our definition of love, we think, no. To put someone to shame is, is mean and unkind. And God is love and God wouldn't do that. But unfortunately, the Bible will disagree with us there. The word confound means to abash to throw the mind into disorder, to cast down and to make ashamed. That's Webster's definition. The Strong's defines it this way, to shame down, to disgrace or by implication put to the blush, to confound or dishonor. Another explanation would be this, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. And what Paul says is God has chosen to use the weak, the foolish, those, you know what? Some of, some of the men in this world that God has used most mightily behind a pulpit to preach his word 
are men whose education did not go beyond the 7th or 8th grade. And you hear me well. We have a generation in my generation that has thrown some of those old guys under the bus because they don't have the education. They may not have, but they believe the Bible. And that put them way out ahead of the guys who think they can explain away the Bible. Amen? And this morning, the Bible says that he uses the deficient, the deprived, and the despised. Let's just think through our New Testament. Think through the New Testament, the people that God saved. What attitude did the, did the communities have toward the blind in that day? When blind Bartimaeus said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, they said, be quiet. They hushed him. They said, don't bother the master. No, don't do that. When the woman who had an issue of blood and couldn't get into the temple tried to touch the hem of his garment, there were certainly those that would have had nothing to do with her, but the Lord allowed her to touch him and her to be healed. The lepers were cast off to the side because they were deficient. They couldn't work. They were separated from society. And God says, I'll choose those who will allow me to help them. And I'll tell you what, they all have in common, needy, Needy people, those who don't need God because we don't need His wisdom, we're smart enough without it. I don't need His righteousness. I'm righteous enough without it. The gospel never gets to them. Can't get to them. You see, you're calling, brethren, not many wise and mighty and noble. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to, not things that are. I do think again of the woman at the well. Here's a Samaritan that, that she was an outcast and a, a castaway both through her no, lack of nobility, her birth, and her foolish, sinful way of living. She destroyed herself and the Lord offered her eternal life and she accepted it. And God saved an entire city of the Samaritans there at Sychar. She went and said, come see a man. Come see a man that told me all that ever I did. She didn't have all the deep theological explanations. She said, he revealed my sin and then he forgave it. John chapter 8, a section of scripture, many of the new translations questions should be in your Bible, have a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. And she's brought to Jesus. And the irony of that is a bunch of fellows bring her and they don't bring the one that was caught with her. Injustice from the word go. And the Lord Jesus bent down and used a shameful, despised woman to confound every man standing there. He wrote something in the dirt and rose up. And they read it. And he wrote something else. And he says, he that is out sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And being convicted by their own conscience, they walked out one by one from the eldest. You know what that's called? Being confounded. He shut their mouths. They were, you know what their intent was? They didn't care about adultery in their society. They were more than happy to be part of it. They didn't care about purification and holiness. They cared about Jesus not coming along and making them look bad. And boy, did that not work. It backfired on them. They come along trying to prove that Jesus is a fraud, trying to snare him, trying to trap him. They say, Lord, they're asking for an explanation. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, Moses in law said she should be stoned, but what say you? I I bet they regretted that for the rest of their lives. Why did we ever ask him that question? Because he bends down. You know what I feel like? I don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but here's what had to happen. 
if you gentlemen want me to exercise my authority as judge and stone every adulterer here, we'll do it. Let's get going. And he that was out sin cast the first stone. Only one person there could have cast it. Huh? And if Jesus had exercised the justice they asked for, they'd all been laying dead. And so they decided it was best to exit the courtroom. And only one stayed and said, I want forgiveness. And Jesus said, go. Neither do I condemn thee. That's called forgiveness. He said, where are those non-accusers? If no man condemn thee, she said, no man, Lord. What's she calling? No man, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I forgive you and I release you from the power of this sin on your life. Go. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. He took a despised woman and shut the mouths of God-denying sinners who deny Jesus Christ. So the calling of God, not many, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The confounding of God, he uses those deficient in wisdom, deprived of strength, despised in the world. And he does that to confound the, the wise. He does that to confound uh, those that are, that are mighty. He does, and by the way, is that not his mercy to do that? Those men who are pridefully rejecting Christ cannot be saved until they're confounded. It's truth. It's truth. And so then finally, the cause of God. Look at verses 29 through 31. Then the Bible says the cause of God. Why does God do it this way? This is as much as he's going to give us spiritual wisdom that no flesh should glory in his presence. God has designed the call of salvation in such a way that every person in heaven will only have to say, I'm here because of the goodness and grace of God. I wasn't wealthy enough to buy my way in. I wasn't righteous enough or strong enough to work my way in. I wasn't intelligent enough to reason my way in. I fell on Christ and he brought me in. Matthew chapter 7, you're familiar. He says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. He says, for many shall say to me, I'm paraphrasing, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Lord, you see our strength for you? Lord, you see our ability to deal with Satan on your behalf and in your name? Lord, you see what we've done? You see our nobility? We've done works. We've overcome the devil. And he says, depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Why did he never know them? Because they never approached him by faith. They approached him by boasts. Many today have faith in their Christianity, not in Christ. They have faith in the way they're executing their life for Christ. I'll take you to the flames of hell. Your work for Christ and your wisdom for Christ or mine will give no man entrance into his kingdom. It is faith in Christ. Faith in his righteousness. Faith in his wisdom. Faith in his accomplishment. God has made the call such that it takes humbling of oneself and knowing one's own neediness. Lord, I am a broken person by sin. I do not have to offer you, so I'm willing to accept what you offer me. Eternal life is not a reward, friend. It is a gift. I'll say it again, eternal life is not a reward. It is a gift. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I said, folks, today I brought enough dollar bills, enough dollar bills, 
that anybody would like a dollar after service, I'll give you one. Any takers? Now you tell me right now, some of you have enough wisdom to know who's going to line up in line for the dollar bills. Where's the age bracket stop? All of you who are working, earning a living, are like, a dollar gets you nothing. I don't need a dollar. Riley, a dollar gets me four ice cream cones. When you have ice cream. Now, if you hand out dollars, I'll take them because I like ice cream. But most people in this room would say, thanks, but no thanks, Pastor. Now, take us back to the Great Depression. And if somebody said, I got a pocket full of dollar bills, and I just want to be generous today, how many people do you think would step up? Everybody. Why? There were many needy, many without strength. Nobility was out the window. There was just need. One of the greatest blessings to America has been our physical blessings. One of the greatest curses is the same. Why do we need the gospel? We have our universities. Why do we need the gospel? We have our wealth. Why do we need the gospel? We have our military. Why do we need the gospel? We have nobility. Yet you can take it to poor countries and people will listen by the thousands. Line up for their own copy of the word of God. Not stand there and say, well, it's probably not the word of God because of how many times it's been translated. They'll just be glad to take it and read it and believe it. You with me? The cause of God, his plan, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. In heaven, hear me now, no flesh will boast in heaven. None. There will be no, well, how are you here? Well, you know, I did really well for myself in life. I did, I did, I did the best I could, and God knows that. God saw how I handled myself. He, you know, he helps them to help themselves. You know, the good book says, no, actually it doesn't. It doesn't say that. He helps those who trust him. And uh, so his plan that no flesh should glory in his presence, his provision, verse 30, but of him, of God's wisdom and God's plan, you who are believers in Christ, of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Here's who, God, who Christ Jesus is, who of God. Christ of God is made unto us. We who lacked wisdom, we got it in Christ. We who have no righteousness, we were given it in Christ. We who had nothing, you know what sanctification is? It's position, it's nobility. You know what, I, I can't, you won't find a lot of honor in my family tree, but today that's not my family anymore. In Christ, I'm a son of God. Because of Christ, no, I don't have earthly nobility, but now I am a child of God, the, the creator of this universe. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. I was a fool, but Jesus Christ... You know what? You couldn't trade what Christ Jesus has taught me for what all the universities in this country have to offer. I, I, you, you couldn't put a price tag on it. He teaches the heart. All they can do is touch the head and defile the heart many times. And so God's provision of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's dealing with those different categories. Wisdom to those who lack it. Those who are not educated. Those who are not intellectuals. Those whose minds perhaps have been dumbed down and numbed down by sin. God can save them too. You don't have to be intelligent to get saved. You have to believe what God says to get saved. Yeah, so He's made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Those who are deficient in righteousness because they've sullied their lives in sin don't have the strength to overcome temptation. They're not mighty. They're not powerful. And sanctification, that's our nobility and redemption. That has to do with wealth. 
You know, the Bible says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our purchase price was not our wealth, but the wealth of Jesus Christ, His shed blood on our behalf. Then the Bible says, verse 31, that according as it is written, God wrote this and He's going to keep His word, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You realize the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of holy is understanding. You can't have that without Christ. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is who? The poor in spirit. Those who know they have not and need strength. They need wealth. They have no nobility to offer God. You know what I love about the gospel? God can take somebody who's never heard the Bible a day in their life and at 35, 36, 40 years of age present them with the gospel and they believe it. And God can take a man who's lived his life foolish all those days, wasted his strength, wasted his wealth. It's the story of the prodigal. Here's a boy that was a fool, wasted everything he had, and finally when he had nothing, then his daddy could bless him. But not until then. Until he was poor in spirit. Isaiah 55 as we close this morning. A couple of other verses. Isaiah 55 and then Isaiah 57. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. That's being poor in spirit. I need water and I don't have it. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, you have no money to offer, come ye buy. How do you buy without money? Well, somebody's having to pay your price, aren't they? Come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. Isaiah 57, verse 15, a couple pages over. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I believe as we read these verses this morning, it's the answer to a couple of things. It's the answer, number one, why we cease to have spiritual awakening, revival, and spiritual supply in our churches. We've tried to replace the provision of God in Christ with all the things that the Bible says they can't save you, nor can they sustain you. I thank God for those blessings. But I wonder if we're trying to do the work of God in the power of the flesh. Let's, 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 let, let's prove who God is by being like the world. Let's be intellectuals and let's be wealthy. You realize the church of the Laodiceans had Christ on the outside because of their... Their physical wealth. They were spiritually paupers because of their physical wealth. And this morning, friend, God has chosen. He said, I, I'm going to choose those who will trust me, those who are needy, to confound those who won't. Not many mighty, not many wise after flesh, not many noble. Not many. Why? Because God's call is to one, to people who know they need. And God uses those who have no might, have no wisdom. You know, as we come into VBS, I'd encourage us. I hear sometimes preaching that 
And it's a reaction to people trying to run children through a salvation mill. You can't do that. God has to save a child like he does anybody else. It's a personal work through the gospel. But sadly, people have knee-jerk react and said, well, children can't get saved. No, children are a lot more likely to get saved than adults for what I've preached to you this morning. They're not mighty and they're not noble and they don't have wealth and anything to offer God. When you say you do have sin, they can say, boy, I got that. And you do have a Savior if you'll accept him. You know, salvation is very simple. It's what Christ did on the cross for us, not what we're doing for him. There's a cross as a disciple that has nothing to do with saving us. It has to do with being in love with the Savior who saved us. This morning, maybe God's using the message as he's used with me to correct some things in our thinking. Let's not replace and get our... Let's not think about the gospel like the world does. Let's not think that God thinks like men do. Isaiah 55 goes on to say that our thoughts are not as his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. God uses what the world rejects, turns around, and confounds the world with what they said we have no place for. You realize God is taking the world's throwaways and turning the world upside down. Is it not true? The noble and the mighty... That's who the world says, oh, let's lift up the highly educated. They're the people. They're the people. Let's lift up the wealthy. Let's lift up the powerful. We haven't time and room for all these. They only come into play if they make us look good. If we can be philanthropists and make ourselves look more mighty and more noble by how we treat them, then we'll do it. Otherwise, we're not interested. But God will take somebody that the world's discarded, give them new life, make them something useful, and confound the wise. Mm -hmm. 